Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got a great select show for you today. We sit down and talk with Sayuki, a geisha, and an actual geisha. And she also holds an actual MBA from Oxford. It's a great conversation that breaks down the business model of running a geisha house, and it's a lot more complex than you might imagine. A lot of people talk about disrupting traditional business models, but this is a truly traditional business model. And we also talk about how the internet and social media is threatening to completely destroy it. There are a lot of people wondering if Geisha will survive this. In fact, there are a lot of Geisha wondering if Geisha will survive this. It's a story involving centuries old cartels and new turf wars, counterfeit goods knowingly being sold over the internet, and the challenge of getting Maiko off their social media accounts long enough to train them. Although that last one is both a problem and a potential revenue stream. Anyway, please enjoy the conversation, and I've got an update for you at the end of the show. Today, I've got something really special for you. We're going to talk about the kind of business that you've probably never heard any details about. Today, we get to sit down and interview Sayuki, a geisha. And since this is disrupting Japan, we'll be talking about the business side of being a geisha. We'll look at the geisha business model and examine how it's being disrupted by modern technology. And believe me, it really is. Now, listeners outside Japan might not understand how special this opportunity really is. Traditionally, geisha are not really supposed to talk about their business. Geisha create the illusion of comfort, beauty, and elegance that is unsoiled by such base things as money. But make no mistake about it, it's an illusion. Geisha is a very serious business, and Sayuki, who also has an MBA from Oxford, has agreed to sit down and walk us through it. In fact, from a business point of view, Geisha are an established cartel. That is being disrupted by new technology, the internet and tourism websites in particular, and by low cost substitutes. And there's a very good chance that geisha will not survive in their traditional form. In fact, many geisha houses are proactively trying to adapt to this new market environment. But Sayuki tells this story much better than I do. So today we're sitting down with Sayuki. Who is a bona fide geisha here in Japan? And we're going to talk about the business of being a geisha. So thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you. First and foremost,、uh, a lot of our audience is either in Japan or knows a lot about Japan, but a lot of people don't. So before we get started with the business, can you clear up exactly? What a geisha is, what they do now, what they used to do. A geisha means arts person, literally. So, geisha are traditional dancers or musicians. And most of the entertainment that we do is private entertainment. 
So we go to dinners uh, and parties, uh, which are usually in private rooms and not uh, large-scale public performances, although we also do those occasionally. Okay. You've been a geisha now for about, about 10 years? Uh, nearly. <laughs> wow. Getting there. <laughs> okay, so since this is an audio podcast, I, I should explain that you are Caucasian, you're not Japanese, which makes you very unique and I'm sure appealing in the world of geisha. Can you back up a bit and tell us the story of why on earth you decided to become a geisha and how you managed to do it? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. I got my doctorate from the University of Oxford. And after graduating, I started to lecture in Japanese studies and also to make documentary programs for television for broadcasters like BBC or National Geographic Channel. And I took a slate of ideas one day to National Geographic Channel, uh, including ideas about infiltrating the mafia and all <laughs> kinds of things. And one of those ideas was to make a program about geisha. So you decided to infiltrate the geisha? <laughs> Instead, yes. Which sounds a lot more interesting and safer than infiltrating the mafia. <laughs> My life could have taken a very different turn. Yes, I imagine so. <laughs> I mean, but it, especially as an Australian, you can't just decide, I want to be a geisha. How did you get connected? How did you get, how did you find someone willing to take you on? I looked first among my alumni. So I was the first white graduate of, the first female um, white graduate of Keio University in Japan. Um, and it's a school with a very strong alumni network and it came in very very handy in the geisha world because many of the tea house owners are KO graduates many of the customers are KO graduates and it was a really great network and they really looked after me and helped to introduce me into the geisha world so I was very lucky in that sense um, but it's true that you can't just walk into the geisha world there's a lot of misconceptions um, there was a, a, an American anthropologist in the 70s called Liza Dalby who um, wrote an absolutely amazing thesis about the geisha world after researching in Kyoto for a year. Um, she was living in the house of an ex-geisha and somewhere along the road in her research they dressed her up and sent her out to a banquet to experience what it was like. And um, she wrote her thesis on the basis of that research. And some people have made um, the assumption that she was a geisha because of that. But it's very, very different to actually become a geisha. Uh, for example, in Kyoto, to become a geisha, they would have to change their rules, their constitution, wow. um, to allow a foreigner in for the very first time in geisha history. And that would be an absolutely major affair, as it was for me. Um, it needed the agreement of all 45 geisha in Asakusa and all the people who are connected to the geisha world. And it was a very, very major decision. And there's absolutely no way possible that Kyoto would have made this yes. decision That's going um, in the 70s. Of hundreds of years. <laughs> but, okay, you've got, okay, I've been in some hard negotiations before. But 
How did you manage to convince 40 plus different geisha houses to, to make this change? It, it, not only accepting a Westerner in, but accepting someone... Now, m- most people start out their geisha training as very small, very young girls, right? So that's a really big deal. How did you get them to make that change? I think I was very lucky and I had very good introductions and those people worked very hard on my behalf. Asakusa is a very conservative, very old-fashioned district and a lot of people don't realise that Tokyo is very much more conservative in many ways than Kyoto is. Really? How uh, Kyoto is very conservative in the look and the way they do things, but they have many modern business methods that Tokyo still doesn't have. Ah. So in that way, Tokyo is very conservative. So I think it's, it's surprising that I got permission to debut in Asakusa, knowing what I know now about the Geisha <laughs> world. <laughs> and there's, there's other misconceptions that people make. They think I somehow opened the door and now suddenly Japan, the Japanese geisha world, welcomes foreigners in. That is very, very far from the case. Not quite true. That's not true at all. I think to get into a proper town district would be equally as difficult now as it was when I debuted nine years ago. Since I debuted, there have been a number of foreigners who have worked as geisha in the countryside or in former seaside resorts, or geisha districts that have have very casual standards, and they're not at all the same thing as town districts. And um, in some of those districts, they have uh, fewer geisha than they used to have, and they have a lot of need of geisha for tourists who suddenly come in at certain times of the year. So they recruit part-timers and all kinds of casual people. So I understand that geisha is not really a part-time job. In the town, see, there's a very, very big divide between a town high-class geisha district and a countryside or seaside or a former um, lodging town. There was, along the road from Tokyo to Kyoto, there were 52 stops and every single one of those had some form of, of geisha, but they were not high-class geisha okay. because they were servicing people who stayed for one night only. So the first one of those was Shinagawa because that wasn't part of Tokyo in the old days, and um, it went on from there. So the, the further you got from either Tokyo or Kyoto, the, I don't want to say lower the standards got, but what, what's the right way to put it? Uh, they were just more casual. More casual? More casual. Less formal, less because tradition? Of the, because of the nature of the clientele. So th- there have been a number of foreigners who have debuted in countryside geisha districts. Nowadays, I, must, I, I have to point out, nowadays, anybody who is a geisha nowadays is serious about their art and serious about um, their job as a geisha. It's, it's not a profession that is very casual these days. But these foreigners, um, they were all married. And the ones who debuted in the countryside or seaside um, districts. And this is because you cannot work as a geisha without long-term residency. And you cannot work in a high-class geisha district if you're married. 
Actually, that is one thing I've I've kind of wondered. Do geisha get married, or what happens when they do? Do they are they expected to retire? It's one of the longest traditions of the geisha world that geisha shouldn't be married because it keeps a sense of romance. I think <laughs> <laughs> every geisha is theoretically available at a banquet. <laughs> okay, your training must have been very different from the traditional training, at least in intensity, because you had to. Well, how old are most girls when they start their training? In the old days, they could have been 11 years old. They could have been、uh, 15 years old. But actually, you can become a geisha at any age, and that was、oh. always the case.、Um, women,、uh, maybe with some kind of a problem in their lives, if they got divorced, if their husband died, if they had to repay a debt. Maybe they would have become geisha. So geisha have always come in at any time. So it's not only young girls、okay. that become geisha in the first place. But it's ironic that、um, my geisha mother was 65 when she took me in, and she herself had arrived in Asakusa at four years old. A distant relative of、um, a, a well-known Asakusa geisha, and she'd started her dance lessons when she was six years old. And she had never taken a trainee until she took me. So I got the training exactly the same as the training from more than fifty years ago. So in that sense, I was very unlucky indeed. <laughs> okay, becoming a geisha then is mostly the first step is finding a geisha mother who will accept you and agree to train you. Yes. Okay. So I, I understand. The fascination. I, I certainly understand why you wanted to study this world and explore this world. But what made you decide to stay in it? What made you actually decide to become a geisha rather than an anthropologist studying geisha? That's a very good question.、Um, the initial agreement with Asakusa was that I would、um, study and train as a geisha for a year. And we were supposed to be t- filming a documentary following my progress. And、uh, the day after that agreement, I was scrubbing the toilet in the Gator House,、mm-hmm. and quickly realised that it's not compatible to be a television director and a Gator trainee.、Mm-hmm. So I had to put the program ambitions on hold and concentrate on becoming a Gator. Because my apprenticeship was so old-fashioned, it took eleven months before I was allowed to debut, and the year was up、um, just a couple of weeks after I debuted. So then I asked the Asakusa Association if I could continue as a geisha, and they reconsidered and made a second decision and allowed me to continue as a geisha. And you obviously enjoy it. I do enjoy it. <laughs> I do enjoy it. I I I used to play the flute when I was a student. I used to play. I used to dress up and play baroque flute、oh. um, in、uh, in shops and restaurants and hotel lobbies and such. So it's and not so very far away from it, is it? It's it's <laughs> not, and it, it it was never a consideration in my mind when I started. But of course, as soon as I started working as a geisha, I was back doing something. That I very much loved when I was a student. That's fantastic.、Mm. Now, I imagine as a foreigner, you're—I mean, not unique because, as you mentioned, there are other foreign geisha, but certainly unusual. 
in the geisha world, are you treated as kind of a novelty, or is it like so many things in Japan? Once you're inside, you're inside, and just like everyone else. I think it's true that once you're formally accepted by a decision of the majority, that you are accepted as a normal member of society. Having said that, and life for any new geisha is very difficult. Um, compared to the life of a modern girl, so it's very hierarchical, it's very strict, and it's 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 very difficult for any girl with modern norms. Just just the restrictions on your on your life in general is what's difficult. Life as the youngest member of a hierarchy is very difficult. Ah, okay. <laughs> Even for somebody who grew up um, partly in Japan, I I, I was here from. The end of junior high onwards. You know, it, it seems almost odd to to speak of geisha as a as a business, but we're going to give it a try today. <laughs> so, in in general terms, geisha today, would you say it's it's closer to part of a, an entertainment industry, or closer to a tourism industry, or kind of a mix of both? I think that geisha are artists, as I said before. And if you think of musicians and dancers in the West, I think one of the key differences is that most artists in the West perform publicly, and geisha performances are still largely private. But if you think about the days of Bach or Mozart, they didn't sit around in a garret on uh, social welfare. They had to go out and they had to perform their pieces. They had to create and perform and perform at the houses of nobles and kings. And they would have had to have some social skills in order to do that. And in some ways, their job might have been a little bit like geisha. For whatever reason, the geisha continued to perform privately. And so I think that very old tradition has just remained unchanged. It's a very interesting type of artist. Not, I mean, obviously from the art itself, but from a business point of view, artists try to be as public as possible. But as mentioned, geisha is very private. Is the business a lot of repeat business? Is it? How do you build a clientele? I think that one of the challenges of the geisha world um, is the fact that most entertainment these days is very public and all about getting as large an audience as possible. And geisha have stayed in the other direction of making things very elite and very discreet and private. Some things are changing these days, and um, geisha are doing some public things. They're doing some media. They're doing all kinds of new business. In my mind, I think it's incredibly important to keep the beautiful traditions alive and to not change the content of what we do, not lower the quality of what we wear or how we behave or the music, um, the standard of the music and the dancing, but at the same time to open it up to new audiences and new places to go and use new methods of communication. Even when I was in Osaksa, because I, I was thrust into the media without any intention of being in the media at all, because I was the first white geisha ever in Japan, at some stage, it was quite a few weeks after my debut, some reporter got hold of this. And in the UK and 
it was announced in the UK and overnight it went to Australia and my phone started calling at 5 a.m. and it didn't stop for days until one of my customers set me up with a website so that uh, we could just say, just email the website and get rid of these people. And it was, um, it's like nothing you can even imagine being thrust into the limelight like that. But this is something that traditionally geisha are not supposed to chase, right? It's supposed to be very well, I didn't chase it. That's <laughs> the whole point. I, believe me, I did not chase that at all. What but was the because, reaction? Well, because that happened, I had to manage it. I had to think about it and I had to manage it. And I had to try and ensure that um, that I contained it in, a, in, in some kind of direction that was appropriate. And of course, when I was in Asakusa, every single piece of media that I did, anything that I did at all, went through my Geisha mother and the Geisha Association. So nothing at all was was done by myself. But because I was in the media, all kinds of offers came from different places that we had to consider anew. So after the excitement in the foreign media, the first Japanese magazine that wanted to run a piece was Friday. Do you know this magazine? It's a a little bit dicey, a little bit (laughs) playboyish. So that was that was a, a bit of a decision for the geisha, for the Asakusa Geisha Association. So what did what did your fellow geisha think of this newfound fame of yours? Some some of the new offers that came, for example, the um, Aussie Beef Trade Show wanted geisha to dance for them. Also radical. Can geisha go to trade shows? Is that possible? <laughs> But the Geisha Association gave us permission, and I think four or five Geisha went out and performed at the trade show. And after that, we performed at many trade shows, and we performed at Frankfurt Messe, the, the largest trade show event space in the world. So in the end, nothing about our content changed. It was a new place and a new audience but I think it was something that, in the end, that gave work to the young geisha and that was very good for them. It's interesting how geisha are adopting to the digital age now. You have a website and you're active on social media. Is that common for geisha in Japan? I certainly wasn't the first geisha to have a website and there's increasing numbers of geisha who have websites And I think they're connecting with new audiences because of that, which is a great thing. Obviously, tourism plays a big part in demand for geisha these days. But tourism moves very quickly. It's very digital. There's there's multiple layers of brokers and dealers. It, It must be very challenging for geisha to work within that framework. I think it... It's a really big issue for us and it will continue to be for a long time. Firstly, tourists are a wonderful audience for geisha because they want to see the real thing. And I'm always explaining this to Japanese audiences who, are, who somehow fear tourism or think that it will dilute the traditions of geisha. But it's really the opposite. Um, some geisha districts have done a very good job of diluting their own tradition 
Um, they've pulled down tea houses and put up concrete buildings. They're not going out in white makeup in them anymore. And I've heard of a karaoke machines inside tea houses and all kinds of dreadful things. Oh my, that doesn't sound very true. That doesn't sound very authentic. <laughs> that's not very authentic, but that's the direction that some Japanese districts have gone. Some geisha houses have even... Uh, are even sending their geisha out as companions, which is a terrible thing. Mm. Um, but tourists want to see the real thing. So it's very important um, for the future of geisha that we connect successfully with tourists. But of course, there's huge threats there as well. And one of the threats is if the booking agencies are large enough, they can upset the geisha hierarchy and they can change the face of, of what we do. And this is a huge danger. There is one booking agency in Japan now that has pictures of furisode, which are companions. Um, they're girls who are dressed up as geisha, but have nothing to do with the geisha tradition whatsoever. And they're advertising them in English as geisha. I can see why this would be so challenging, because especially the tourism business, a lot of people are coming to Japan for the first time. The booking agents themselves, I mean, tourism in general is a very difficult, low-margin business. They make money by booking people into something that they'll enjoy regardless if it's authentic or not. So how would someone go about booking an authentic geisha for a party? Anyone can contact me at any time on my website. I will be very happy to um, advise on any geisha experience. We'll, we'll definitely put those links up. But <laughs> no, I'm, ser- like I'm serious. General... You know, I'm not just a geisha. I, I also lecture in geisha studies. Um, I've lectured at Keio and Waseda for the last nine years. Um, I've visited just about every geisha district in Japan. And because I'm in a very unusual position now of not being affiliated to any geisha district, I work with almost all of the geisha districts from Tokyo and many from all around the country. I very much have an invested interest in ensuring that all geisha succeed. And I'm very happy to introduce anybody to geisha districts wherever they want to okay. hold their banquet. We'll make sure that link gets up on the site. But how are geisha houses or the geisha industry? I I don't want to call it the geisha industry, but how are geisha responding to this problem? How are are they protecting their their image and their business from these like low-cost shows that are going up on all these tourism sites? Uh, Good question. Um, The geisha are very upset about several developments the people advertising fake geisha in english of course there's only a handful of geisha that speak english so um, there's not so many people that are aware but now they've become aware and they are doing something about it but the second dangerous situation in the geisha world is that we've um, seen foreigners try to set up as geisha when they have uh, no legal right to work in Japan as geisha. You need to have long-term residency to work as a geisha. The power of the booking agencies on the internet and the power of social media are affecting the traditional hierarchy in the geisha world, and this is a huge problem. Um, Yeah, I can imagine with that much money 
and that much business flowing through one or two small channels, it gives them a lot of power. But are most geisha technologically savvy? Do most geisha tweet? Do they have Facebook pages? Uh, some, some of them do. Some of the younger ones are, are quite active on the internet. <laughs> some of them, they, they're getting there. Yeah? So. It's a slow process. Yeah. The same thing is true in all traditional industries take a long time to adopt new technologies. Traditional crafts, I can imagine, would take even longer. Yes. I mean, geisha have never really run their businesses by themselves. Geisha are artists, so it's the tea houses that acquire the customers and do a lot of the business side of it. Um, so some of them may, may be more internet savvy. But I think geisha are catching up. <laughs> Is that still the primary means of business, the tea houses will book the geisha, or are geisha now having to be more proactive and find the, the customers on their own? Some geisha are active in finding customers for themselves, but traditionally, of course, it was the tea houses' role. It was not something that geisha would have been proactively involved in, looking for new customers, at least. They would have been always proactively involved in keeping customers. Right. Um, I mean, one of, one of the dangers of the internet is that, for example, a lot of the um, tourist banquets in Kyoto now, they don't involve a change in geisha fees ever because geisha fees are set by the district. It's a system whereby a geisha can't undercut each other. So geisha are protected mainly in that way. But if you go to a cheap tourist banquet, one single maiko comes in, and it will be the most junior maiko because senior geisha don't like to do these kind of banquets. She'll come in by herself with a room full of 30, 40, 50 tourists, and the poor thing will do one dance and then have to wander around the room interacting with dozens of people. And it's a geisha experience, but it's not a banquet. It's not a beautiful private space where you can interact with the geisha and relax and be part of the moment. And, and for our foreign listeners, a maiko is a geisha in training. One, one really new thing, I think, with geisha, I said before, we're trying to get to new audiences and new places. Geisha have always been able to travel anywhere. And we're very happy to entertain overseas. And we love to travel. We usually go overseas once or twice a year. And we go to private parties. We go to large-scale events, to conventions. We can go and speak. We can do all kinds of events. Okay. And that's always been the case. Geisha were traditionally uh, at the first day of the opening of the sumo wrestling matches, for example. Or on the first day of the kabuki, geisha would have been there en masse. So this is just a new application of old ideas. When we were talking earlier... You mentioned that you are starting your own geisha house. You're, you're going to be both teaching the next generation and, well, turning this into an expanded form of business. After I'd been in Asakusa Geisha for four years, I um, applied for permission to have my own geisha house because my geisha mother was retiring through illness. And that's when I hit the glass ceiling and... 
I was not allowed to become a geisha mother on the grounds that I was a foreigner. That led to me opening my own independent geisha house in the Yanaka area of Tokyo. This, it's an unusual move, but it wasn't entirely unprecedented. There's single geisha houses in different areas in Japan where either the geisha district has disappeared around it or for some reason there's only one geisha or one geisha house there. So since that, in the last five years, I've had nine trainees altogether. I'm about to get my tenth. These are all maiko or is there a stage before maiko? It depends what maiko or or geisha is only a question of age. Oh. Firstly, it translated into English as apprentice. Um, and in the old days, it was um, an apprentice stage. Um, but these days, there's a long period of training before you become either a maiko or hangyoku, as it's called in Tokyo, or a geisha, uh, depending on how old you are. So depending on their age, my girls have either been hangyoku or a geisha when okay. they come in. Running a geisha house, is that more akin to running a school or is most of the business geisha performances? Sometimes it feels like I'm running an orphanage, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've never had children myself, but I suddenly got landed with an 18-year-old with my first little geisha. And that was a very big shock to the system, I can tell you. (laughs) Trying to separate them from their mobile phones is the is the first <laughs> difficult part of being a geisha mother. Well, well, at least you know they're going to be social media savvy. <laughs> Maybe a little too too social media savvy for their geisha mother. Um, to be a geisha mother is to to help these young geisha trainees become accomplished geisha. So I don't directly teach any of the arts because I'm a flute specialist and the younger geisha usually start with dance and drum, sometimes tea ceremony, sometimes other arts. Uh, So they train from specialist teachers um, in each different art, but some of them live in, if they're very young, they live in with me. A trainee has to follow around their geisha mother and learn by example, learn how to greet people, learn what to do at what different times, learn how to wear kimono, how to move gracefully, everything one needs in order to become geisha-like. And that elusive geisha-like <laughs> is, is, is what they're trying to achieve and what takes many, many years in practice to achieve. But I understand it, it's the training never stops. I understand that you, you keep taking lessons in, in dance and music forever, basically. Yes, geisha train all their lives in the arts. What do you enjoy most about the job? I love the flute and I love uh, practicing and I love performing. And in the end, um, even though there's many beautiful things about the geisha life, in the long run, if you don't love practicing and performing, then it's not going to work. So that's very important. But apart from that, I think it's very difficult to live a truly beautiful life, to be in beautiful surroundings with beautiful things, wearing beautiful things, seeing beautiful people, um, being in beautiful, exquisite, traditional Japanese architecture. 
looking at beautiful paintings. It's hard to live a truly beautiful life. It's not really a job, is it? It's, it's, <laughs> it's something else. <laughs> I, I think it's a calling. It's a, it's a vocation. I, I, I have often joked that if I stopped being a geisha, I'd have to go to work. <laughs> Are geisha dying out in Japan? Is there a revival going on now? What's... What's going to be the state of geisha in 20 years from now in Japan? If I have anything to do with it, um, there's a revival happening right now. It's, it's very interesting to see the girls who are coming into my geisha house. Some of them have lived overseas, they speak English, and because they were overseas, they're asked questions about Japan that they can't answer. And they become aware that they don't know very much about Japanese culture mm. and that they want to know about it. And so you have a new type of girl who's also coming into the geisha world. And in my view, geisha have to uh, redefine themselves. There's always um, an element of drinking companion in the job. But I think geisha need to increasingly define themselves as representatives of Japan. That would, be, that would make sense. It'd be a very appropriate role in kind of today's society. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where tourism is very important. And of course, the internet and social media and all these things are very important in that as well. But some of the things I'm most excited about at the moment is trying to connect these new geisha trainees who are really excited about protecting Japanese tradition and who have the English skills to talk directly to foreign clients and trying to connect them with geisha fans from all around the world. So even just a quick look at the internet shows you that there are, there's hundreds of thousands of, of supporters of geisha all around the world, oh, which absolutely. is a wonderful thing. Connecting those to these girls, they have to quit their jobs, they have to make heavy sacrifices in their lives to become geisha. And the biggest challenge in the geisha world is how do you fund these girls when it takes six months or a year of training before they get to the stage where they can go to their first day of work. Right. And again, I want to thank you again for sitting down for a, a business podcast because I know it's often considered inappropriate for geisha to talk about money in business, or at least their own money in business. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally, it's never really been a, a real business business, right? I mean, there's always been a certain amount of patronage involved. Exactly. And the number of patrons have decreased. The number of Japanese that are very culturally aware have decreased. This is also a problem. How, how to replace the patrons that would have supported young geisha in their training it's a really crucial issue. And is this something you think that social media can play a role in? I am hoping. <laughs> I am hoping that, um, that we can do something really interesting to connect the trainees to um, geisha fans abroad. We're going to list my new trainees on Patreon and see how it goes. <laughs> That's fantastic. We'll definitely put a link to that on the site. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest. The idea is that the Geisha fans would get unique access to the trainees' weekly blog and photos and maybe have a chat session with them so that they can follow their progress in their dance and their drum lessons, maybe have some podcasts, 
And of course, if they come to Japan, they can have a banquet with the geisha. And if they succeed in getting us Japan Foundation funding to go overseas, of course, we can have a banquet overseas. Geisha on podcasts and Skype. It's, it's what is the world coming to? <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you're just a Geisha fan, just you know, watching Geisha on the internet, hopefully it will be exciting to be able to actually be creating a new Geisha because that is literally what these people would be doing. They would be making it possible to create a new Geisha. It does make sense because we've seen this happen in all other kinds of artistic endeavors. I mean, if you look back on the history of, of music and art, it used to all be patron-based as well. I mean, all over the world. Maybe what we're seeing is a change from having one or two really wealthy patrons to having you know hundreds of patrons who can follow remotely and pay a little bit of money and achieve the same thing in the end for the artist. Exactly. It's a totally amazing thing. Um, the thought that this beautiful, wonderful tradition in Japan could be supported and helped by people from all around the world is just such an amazing idea, and I'm so excited about it. I do, I do want, I'm going to be absolutely lynched for this on social media. I can tell you that already. I get lynched for all kinds of things. But I want to, we're going to put it into, in a couple of stages. Um, but I do want to point out that I'm already the major sponsor of the new trainees. And even if we got Patreon, um, even if we successfully went through the first stage, I am still funding all the second and the third stage myself. To what extent Gator House is a business is, is kind of an issue. I mean, for me, I have an MBA from Oxford, so I can tell you that I can think of several thousands of jobs that would pay me a great deal more money <laughs> than being a geisha. So in my case, I think it's absolute evidence that I've sacrificed a lot financially in order to become and remain a geisha. I think sacrificing for your art is almost a requirement. <laughs> At the moment, I'm sacrificing. I'm sacrificing for a whole generation of new artists and hoping very much that they would stay and actually fulfill their dreams. Well, I think it's going to be fascinating over the next five to ten years to see how this plays out and if social media becomes the new patrons of the arts and the, the patrons of, of geisha in Japan and worldwide, I think it'd be a fantastic thing. Mm. Well, listen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was really fascinating. Mm. And we're back. You know, most people don't think of geisha as an industry, and perhaps it's not, but it certainly can be modeled that way. Now, each geisha district has strict boundaries, which are respected by other districts, and all houses within a district agree to set the price and not compete. Any new competition can only enter via the consent of the existing players. At least, that's how it used to work. Online advertising and booking and low-cost substitutes are disrupting that model, and not for the better. Another radical change in the geisha world that Sayuki shared with me after we turned the mics off was that of retention. Unlike in ages past, geisha today, they have options, particularly the bilingual ones that Sayuki is working with. 
Today, any young geisha can go get a job as the personal assistant to the CEO of a successful company and get three times the salary. So geisha mothers can no longer expect absolute obedience and control. They have to make sure that the young generation actually enjoys being a geisha. And that's probably a positive change, even if it does mean letting them keep their smartphones. And now for a quick update. The coronavirus has hit the geisha business pretty hard, as it has for all in-person entertainment. But really, it just highlighted the problems that geisha have been facing for some time. The internet and social media have not been kind to Sayuki and the geisha, and the trends we discussed in our original conversation have continued. Sayuki's attempts at crowdfunding have not been terribly successful, but in in hindsight, it's easy to understand why. Without dumbing down and and cheapening what geisha represent, it's very difficult to appeal to the bite-sized, instant gratification, viral-sharing formats that social media demands. But perhaps that's for the best. Even if Sayuki managed to achieve some degree of internet success, sadly, the cheap, fake geisha she talks about, the imitators, would move in and then come to dominate social media the way they have the online booking sites. And so, it seems that some business models should not be modernized. Perhaps the traditional business model of running a geisha house is as much a part of the art as the musicianship and dance and tea ceremony skills. Changing the model would change who they are, and that would be a loss for all of us. If you want to talk more about geisha or other truly traditional business models, Sayuki and I would love to hear from you. So come by Disrupting Japan slash show 168 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee Sayuki or I or, or maybe both will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But, but even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is my labor of love. It's free forever, and we have no advertising budget. People hear about the podcast because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.